right, good morning, everyone. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, please, to uh, John chapter 12. We'll be in John chapter 12 this morning, and we're going to pick up our reading in verse 37. <coughs> you know, last week I mentioned some of the benefits of um, verse-by-verse preaching. And one of them is it doesn't allow the preacher to skip over some of the more difficult passages in the Bible. Uh, going verse by for, verse, I, I have to preach the full text. And though uh, it would be a lot easier just to preach on peace and happiness and joy e- each week, we do know that all scripture, not some, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness so we may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work so god has something profitable for us as john under the inspiration of the holy spirit answers the question why did the nation of israel not receive jesus as their messiah and he sort of peels back the curtain if you will into their unbelief in our verses today so Um, I want to begin by reading our text once through, and then we can look at what this passage means and what it says to us. So let's begin in verse 37, and we'll read right through to verse 43. This is God's inspired and infallible word. Verse 37, though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, and they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, or for this reason, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even the ruling authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. At this point of chapter 12, it is now Wednesday. It is the fourth day of the Passover week. We are now just two days away from the Lord Jesus Christ being crucified. The following night will be, of course, Thursday night, where he will be instituting the Lord's Supper with the twelve in the upper room. The time of his hour is upon him. And after three years of public ministry from all outward appearances it would seem as if Jesus's preaching and teaching has fallen on deaf ears because rather than be surrounded by a massive crowd of believers Jesus is surrounded by a massive crowd of unbelief the chief priests and scribes are at this very moment plotting to put the Lord Jesus Christ to death secretly lest they arouse the larger populace At this very moment, Satan is now entering Judas Iscariot, and 
to the chief priests and officers to cut the deal on how he might betray the Son of God. And Judas is now at this very moment seeking the right opportunity to betray him. Almost everyone in Israel is in a state of unbelief. Some of the ruling authorities want to believe, but because of fear and ultimately the pride of life, they remain held captive in their chains of unbelief. And as Jesus gives one final call to believe, he sees his own nation, his own people, Israel, in a state of unbelief. And it is in this dire moment that the Apostle John is now looking back on what happened. And he summarizes it in these insights that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he helps us to make some sense as to why the nation of Israel as a whole rejected the person and message of Christ. So, as we look at these verses, verses 37 to 43, there is one dominant theme throughout, and it is that of unbelief. It is the unbelief of the nation Israel by its people and by its leaders in their utter rebellious and deliberate rejection of the Son of God. But how could this be? Did it mean that God had changed his mind? That he cast off his own chosen people of Israel? Or did it mean that Israel's rejection of Christ surprised God? The importance of these questions and the struggles that they reflect are answered most clearly in Romans 9 through 11 by the Apostle Paul. And though Paul does go into it much deeper, here in our few verses here, John also answers these questions for us. So as we look at these, um, I have broken them down into four headings in your bulletins. You'll see these are four facts that we see in the text of unbelief and its danger. And the first one that I want you to notice is unbelief dismisses the evidence. Unbelief dismisses the evidence. And we see this beginning in verse 37. The Apostle John writes, Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In his three plus years of public ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't do just a few signs. He had done so many signs, and yet John says they still did not believe in him. Now, as we've discussed before, we have but a handful of signs that John chooses to put into his gospel. But as he closes out this book, in the very last verse of the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verse 25, John writes, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. One theologian suggested that disease was all but vanquished from the Middle East as Jesus carried out his ministry of not only preaching, 
but of healing the sick. One thing we know for sure is for those three plus years Jesus walked on the earth, he was a non-stop miracle worker. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. He cast out evil demons from the possessed. He gave working muscles to the lame. He even raised the dead. Jesus performed countless miracles. And notice what else John adds there in verse 30. He had done so many signs before them. These were right before their eyes. Um, Now, were there some done behind closed doors? And Jesus said not to tell everyone. Sure, there was a few of those. But for the most part, these were signs done out in the open for everyone to see and to behold. We saw massive crowds experiencing these. And every single miracle that Jesus performed was an authentic, authenticating sign to the fact that he was the Son of God, the Son of Man, and that he had been sent by the Father into this world to speak the very words that the Father gave him to speak and to seek and to save that which was lost. And despite all of these signs and all of these miracles, we read they still did not believe in him. The verb tense used here for believe better reads, yet they were not believing. It indicates an ongoing spirit of rejection. That it was a constant, growing state of unbelief. It wasn't flickering moments of unbelief. It was becoming more resolute and more concrete. It was an unbelief that was becoming more defiant and more hardened by the moment, and we've seen this kind of escalating with the religious leaders as their doubt now turns to hatred towards the Lord Jesus Christ. They now have a disdain for him. It seemed as if every preceding miracle and every preceding teaching, instead of it softening their hearts, it has hardened their hearts even more. It's the old saying, the same sun that melts the snow hardens the clay. And though 11 of the 12 disciples' hearts were being softened, and we've witnessed these small pockets of people that have come to true saving faith in Christ, for the vast majority of Israel, the ministry of Jesus was actually hardening their hearts with every sermon they heard with every miracle that they saw hearts were becoming more callous and this is the danger of what unbelief does it can look right at the truth right at the miracle right at the sermon and just decide my mind's already made up no amount of evidence will win me over And Jesus talks about this state of blindness at the end of the story of the rich man and Lazarus at the end in Luke 16. And you'll recall it was the rich man who had begged Father Abraham for Lazarus to go and to warn his five brothers that they might repent lest they also come to this place of torments. 
But Jesus said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, this is summing up the, the Old Testament, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Unbelief is to look square at the truth and to turn in denial of the truth. But understand this, unbelief does not have head problems. Unbelief has heart problems. Verse 37 really is an affirmation of the total depravity of the human heart. That the Son of God could leave heaven and to come into this world and to come unto his own and his own receive them not. How hardened must hearts be? How blind must eyes be? How deaf ears must be that only a few are on the narrow path and that the many are on the broad road headed for destruction. Unbelief denies God's truth. It dismisses the evidence that God has revealed. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth of their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave Thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Man will be without excuse at the end of the age. God has revealed himself through creation, Romans 1 tells us. God has revealed himself through his word, the book of Hebrews tells us. God has revealed himself through his church. He says that every nation will in fact have a witness. But in these last days, Hebrew 1 says, he has spoken to us through his son. The people of Israel were God's chosen people. To them belonged the adoption, the covenants, the law, the temple services, the promises. Christ came from their forefathers, their kindred. They had the oracles of God And yet when the Messiah came, and though he had done so many signs before him, they were not believing. Jesus will say in John chapter 15, verse 24 and 25, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen. And yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. If the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength, then how great of a sin must it be to go to your grave having utterly rejected God and to refuse to believe in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that was one verse down. 
Let's go to the second truth of Israel's unbelief. Prophecy is fulfilled in Israel's unbelief. Israel's unbelief is already calculated into God's plan. And we need to understand this. In in no way did Israel's unbelief thwart God's plan. All right? Again, the cross wasn't uh, plan B. It was plan A. It was God's plan. And God, in his infinite wisdom and purpose, used Satan and used unrepentant Israel in order for us to know that he prophesied it through a warning. And I want you to see this. Look at verse 38. Verse 38, this, it starts with this, referring to the unbelief of the nation. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John inserts verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 53 right into here. Isaiah 53, that that one chapter, the Mount Everest chapter of the Old Testament, the suffering servant chapter, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How does Isaiah chapter 53 begin? It begins with this verse right here. Lord, who has believed our report? He's referring to the the preaching of the gospel, the message. And to raise this rhetorical question, Lord, who has believed? He's asking, who has received our message of truth? Who has received it, Lord? And the answer to the rhetorical question is so obvious, it doesn't even need to be answered. It's glaringly obvious that virtually No one has believed our report. Virtually no one has believed that the Son of God has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That the Son of God has come not to serve but to be served. Not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That the Son of God has come and announced that I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life who has believed our report. Now this was written centuries before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only was this a prophecy that was foretold, but it was also foreordained. Now, I want to be very clear with this. God is not the author of evil. Man is responsible for his own unbelief. In the heart of every man, every depraved sinner, there is unbelief that is passed down through our fallen nature. And it is there as a result of Adam's fall and and the work of Satan in the garden. So, but John quotes Isaiah 53 to ask, Lord, who has believed our report? Virtually no one. And then he asks, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? The arm of the Lord has been revealed to the people 
of Israel through the countless miracles of Christ. They didn't believe the report and they missed the signs. You remember Jesus said back in chapter 6, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So it was through their unbelief, which served as a necessary means in the eternal purpose and plan of God, which led to the cross, which led to salvation. This unbelief of Israel was necessary in order for them to carry out the crucifixion of Christ. If the whole nation had risen up and there was spiritual revival that had broken out and all the religious leaders fell and confessed Jesus as Lord, there would have been a crucifixion. And if there had been no crucifixion, there would be no salvation. And if there was no salvation, you and I would be dead in our sins still. There had to be the unbelief of the nation in order for Jesus to be nailed to the cross. And though God is not the author of evil, God is the author of a plan that includes evil men. And in his infinite wisdom, he has chosen to incorporate evil into his plan for a far greater good that will result in salvation for a vast number of people. I want to show you, that I didn't come up with this. <laughs> I'll show you this, and turn with me please to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And, and uh, I, just want, I just want to read uh, three verses there, verses 6 through 8. But I think uh, really helps shine some light on this as John is wanting us to understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, yet we do speak wisdom. And, and, and this wisdom here refers to the wisdom of the cross. It, it refers to the wisdom of Christ and Christ crucified. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It refers to the wisdom of an almighty God and how God can be both just and the justifier on the cross. That God can take our sins and lay them upon an innocent Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he can die in our place and bear our sins and suffer our judgment. And we can receive the, the perfect righteousness of Christ in return. O only the sheer genius of God could have designed the plan of salvation. So Paul says, yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. And, and the mature uh, here refers to those who are being saved. A wisdom, however, not of this age. <laughs> no, th 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 this is not of this age. It, it doesn't originate from culture. It, it doesn't originate from the, the smartest minds in the room. It doesn't even come from the church or from the church leaders. No, no, Paul says it's not of this age, meaning it has come down from above. 
it has come down uh, from eternity into time. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, meaning it is veiled from the eyes of the unbelieving. They don't see what we see because God has opened our eyes and we see the beauty that is the cross. He goes on to say, which God predestined before the ages to our glory, meaning for our good. Now look at, look at verse 8. This is what I wanted you to see. This wisdom, which none of the rulers of this age has understood, not Annas, not Caiaphas, not Herod, not Pilate, definitely not Caesar. Don't miss this, verse 8. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They want to crucify him if they knew what God had in store for salvation. Church, I don't know what the, the, the deepest thought is that's ever entered your mind. But I bet that this would be on the short list. This is the deep end of the pool. This is not the shallow end. <laughs> let, let, let your mind and your heart be enlarged for God. That God, according to his sovereign will, from eternity past, predestined that his son would go to the cross and die for the sins of his people. And in order for that sin-bearing, substitutionary death to take place, there would have to be the hands of wicked men with hearts of unbelief that would nail him to the cross. And in the infinite, almighty wisdom of God, God can take a crooked stick and draw a straight line. And God can use wicked men for his glory. Proverbs 16.4, I'm just going to rattle through a couple quick verses for you. Proverbs 16, 4 says, The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Ecclesiastes 3, 11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning, even to the end. Romans 9, verse 22 what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected, that would be Christ, this became the very cornerstone the spot you line up the entire house on and build it square and it will hold uh, many of these lines intersect far above our heads these are what I like to say far above our pay grade <laughs> and, and we can't sort everything out but what we can understand is that the unbelief of the nation of Israel the unbelief of the nation of Israel was part of the eternal purpose and plan of God. 
that brought about the crucifixion of the Son of God so that whosoever would believe in him could have your sins washed in the blood of Christ and clothed with the perfect righteousness of God's own Son. We now come to the third truth of unbelief as we go even deeper in the text. Buckle up. Unbelief brings God's judgment. Unbelief brings God's judgment. And, and we, we see the starting here in verse uh, 39. John writes, Therefore, they could not believe. So because they did not believe the report of the gospel message, because they rejected the Son at every turn, because the people were too busy eating their fill of the loaves and chose to harden their own hearts towards the gospel preaching that was brought by Jesus and then brought by his disciples, for this reason they could not believe. But John doesn't stop there. He gives us further explanation. And so John goes back to Isaiah one more time. And he writes, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. This is the moment when the lights went out over Israel. When God's patience has finally run out. There comes a time there comes a place, there comes a, a line in the sand when the day of opportunity for salvation can be closed by God. This is the danger. And, and, and here God brings his judicial hardening of the heart. But understand this, the heart was already hardened. All God does is speed up the process. All God does is is push the sinner in the way he, he's already going. All God does is remove all restraints. And the nation of Israel has now crossed that line with God. And God now hardens their hearts. They first hardened their own hearts. But now God steps in and conquers. And this is exactly what happened with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, uh, isn't it? R remember reading how, how God hardened Pharaoh's heart? I think it was ten times. But it also says ten times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and he hardened it first to the things of God. Listen, we, we all know the danger in rejecting the gospel as it exposes you to the eternal judgment of God. We just always think that it's going to be later. We just always think we have more time. We always just think that this can be put off until some other time that I could share the, the truth with the person I love. We, we always have tomorrow. Listen, that is the danger by rejecting the gospel, it exposes you to the eternal judgment of God. But we also know that God is merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in love, Scripture says. And thankfully, by God's grace, he is incredibly patient. In fact, 
most of us all know somebody or, or at least have heard someone who has been saved in their very final hours or final weeks or final months. And there are times when God's mercy chases that sinner all the way to the grave. And it is the patience and long-suffering grace of God who says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. Which should make us wonder about our own nation. Because there comes a time with a nation when the collective culture and society, when they have hit that point of no return. When God blows the candles out. When God turns out the light. When God steps back and he abandons the people and allows them to go their own way. Romans 1 says, when God gave them over to their own sinful desires. Do you remember Sodom and Gomorrah? And God is ready to um, bring judgment down uh, upon the, the city and Abraham begins to intercede with God. And, and he says, will you indeed sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked? Uh, suppose that there are 50 righteous God. The Lord says, if I, I find 50, then no. Abraham says, well, what if there are 40? No. Well, what if there are 30? No. What if there are 20? No. What if there are 10? There wasn't even 10. And then the fire came down from heaven. And as we look around at the deterioration of our once predominantly God-fearing nation, I can't help but wonder what the number is in the mind of God for the United States of America. All I can say is God has been incredibly patient, incredibly merciful to us. But at some point, God's patience runs out. For God is also just. And when you hit that point with God, God just blinds your eye. And so that the most obvious things that you can no longer see. You can look into the mirror and no longer know if you're looking at a man or a woman. I don't know. It happened in Rome. It's happening now. It's when God gave them over to their own sinful desires, it says in chapter 1, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a, depra to a depraved mind. Well, it was the depraved mind and blind eyes and hardened hearts that would lead to the crime of all ages. It would lead to the premeditated first-degree murder of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There is no greater crime that has been committed on planet Earth, and yet, through that, through that, for it was the predetermined, planned, and foreknowledge of God, Acts 2 says, that he would use godless men and they would nail his son to the cross that actually led to the saving grace of God that has now stretched to the ends of the earth. 
Who knows what God is doing in America right now? Who knows if God has already burned the bridges and there's no going back? But that's where the nation of Israel was, and it says God blinded their eyes. Not Satan, God. God blinded their eyes. For not only is God the only hope for their nation, God is the greatest threat to a nation when unbelief brings in God's judgment. Isaiah 55 verse 6 warns us and says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. God's judgment came on those who refused to believe in the Son, therefore they could not believe. So he blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, look at verse 41 there. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Uh, before we move on, I just want to uh, give a little footnote and, and lift the mood up here a little bit. Uh, the first quote is from Isaiah chapter 53. The second Isaiah quote that we just read comes from Isaiah 6. Tom, remember we were talking about Isaiah 6? Tom? When we were a, a walking uh, at the home and harvest, Isaiah 6, when was it that Isaiah saw... God. I'm gonna have to warn him. I'm gonna have to warn him before we before we call on him next time. Stay tuned. That was the setup, brother. The fact, brother Tom, the fact that John uses Isaiah 6 here, where the prophet has the vision of the Lord, the fact that John uses it here makes it clear that the vision was the Lord Jesus Christ. That Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 opens, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And the seraphim stood by him, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds began to shake at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. What this says is that the one whom Isaiah saw was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That the one who was with him is the same one who was enthroned in the days of Isaiah. Therefore, this is actually one of the strongest statements of the absolute deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus of Nazareth is Jehovah. That Jesus of Nazareth is Yahweh. That Jesus is truly man, yet truly God. But I'll tell you something else. The impact of verse 41 makes a huge difference on the impact then on verse 40, which is what we just looked at. Because if this is in fact Jesus in verse 41, whom Isaiah saw, which I believe it is, it says that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory 
and spoke of him. Then what we read in verse 47, uh, 40 then means that it is Jesus who blinded their eyes. It is Jesus who hardened their hearts. It's Jesus who brought this judicial hardening upon the nation of Israel. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. Back in John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus told the religious leaders, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So, the Father judges no one, everything, all authority has been given to the Son. In fact, Jesus says that a few verses later in chapter 5, verse 27. And he, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And there's that famous title again, the Lord loves to use, Son of Man. So all judgment will be executed and administered by the Son. And then did you notice the verb tense? It's not the Father will give. He's already given it. He has given him authority. It's already in his hands. And then just jump down to verse 30 there. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will. And this is again where we see the, the total humility of Christ, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus would say in John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. In reality, they stand together as judge. Yet it is the Father who has put the gavel into the hand of the Son. Why? So that the Son will have the place of preeminence in all things. And then at the end of, the t end of time, after the Father has given everything to the Son, the Son will reciprocate that and give everything back to the Father. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just this back and forth, constant love affair between the Father and the Son that the Father has. He gives it to the Son, and the Son gives it back to the Father. And so what we see then as we look carefully in John chapter 12 is that Jesus Christ is the one who was already in his time beginning to execute judgment upon Israel in his day. He, he wasn't waiting for the second coming. God is sovereign. And so when Israel's unbelief had crossed over that line, the light went out. Well, we come to these last two verses of this section, and we close with the fourth point that we see of Israel's unbelief. And number four is unbelief seeks man's approval, not God's. Unbelief seeks man's approval, not God's. And this is what we see in verses 42 and verse 43. Verse 42, John writes, Nevertheless, many, even the rulers, believed in him. Now, now the question for the interpreter is, is this true saving faith? Does, or, or is this a, a superficial faith? Or, or is this just unbelief masqueraded as faith? And to help us out on this, I, I, I want to quickly take you back um, turn a few pages back to um, John chapter 2 and uh, verses 23 through 25 um, and, and just 
to set in your mind that, that every time that we read that someone believed in Jesus, it, it doesn't mean that it's a, a true, authentic, saving faith, right? There is a faith that, a faith that is only um, head knowledge, but it never gets down into the heart. And we see this in John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, this was the first Passover. Our story's taking place at the last Passover, three and a half year, three years later. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But now look at the next verse. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? For he knew all men. He knew what was in man. Now, if you were actually looking this in the original Greek that John wrote this in, what we would see is the word for believe there in verse uh, 23, pistaio, is actually the very same word that's translated in verse 24, entrusting, believe and entrusting. It could be most literally translated they were believing in Jesus, but Jesus was not believing in them because he knew all men. Jesus knew that although they professed him, they did not possess him. All right? So he knew that although they had the right vocabulary, many will have the right vocabulary and say, Lord, Lord, they, they, they might have the right name, uh, their belief in him was not a saving faith. You know, may, maybe they liked something about him. We've seen that already. Maybe they were drawn to him for selfish reasons. What can I get from this man? But they hadn't committed their life to Christ. And I fear for so many today, as churches are filled with, with many people like this, sure, they know parts of the Bible, and maybe they've even become members of a church or or they go through the motions and sing the songs. But they've just never been born again. They, they've, they've never met the living, risen Christ and surrendered their life to him. They've never come to know Jesus as Lord. And these are the ones that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus will say, Not everyone will say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many, not a few, many, will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And, and cast out demons in your name? And, and do many mighty works in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we do those things? And the Lord will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship. You, you visited me on Sunday, and then I had to wait again till the next Sunday to talk to you. And that's exactly what's happening in John 2. And I think that's exactly what's happening in our text in, in John chapter 12. And I can identify this because um, I, I, I struggled with this um, very soon after I was saved. There, there, there was the honeymoon of being saved, and, and then kind of it settled in, and, and it was something that I, that I did. And, and thank God he, he came and, and grabbed my heart. 
But let's go back to John chapter 12 there and, and see. It's an, an interpreter's decision. And these interpretive narratives can sometimes be challenging. So John 12, verse 42, Nevertheless, many, even the rulers, believed in him. Sounds good so far. But notice, there, there's that word, but. That's usually not good. But, yeah, but, that's what I usually use it with my wife. Yeah, yeah but. And it's never good after that. Excuses. <laughs> yeah, but honey. For fear, but. For fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, one of the questions I asked, is there such a thing as a secret believer? It, 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 does God have secret agents in his army? Uh, can you believe but not confess Jesus publicly let's let jesus answer that and i think he does a pretty good job of it he says in luke chapter 9 verse 25 through 26 he says for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father and of the angels so the issue is salvation or condemnation, right? Gain the whole world, uh, option one, or lose your whole soul, right? And then the very next verse is, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed of when he comes in his glory. So it looks pretty clear to me, if you are ashamed of Jesus in this world, Jesus says, I'll be ashamed of, of you for the next one. And that will not bode well, I would suspect. Um, just a couple more real quick here. Luke uh, chapter 12, verse 8. Jesus says, and I tell you the truth, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. So that looks pretty good as well. And then, of course, there's Romans chapter 10, verse 9. You know the verse. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Um, now let's look back at our text in verse 43, as I think it gets sealed up for us here pretty easily. And I want you to notice there, verse 43 starts out with the word for, which means this is the further explanation for, for what he just said. For they love the glory, is referring to those who would not confess Jesus with their mouth, for they love the glory that comes from man, more than the glory that comes from God. This is yet another illustration of Israel's unbelief. Who were these people? Verse 42 tells us, nevertheless, many, many even of the rulers believed. These were the religious rulers. These were the high priests, the scribes, the members of the council, the, 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 the Sadducees, right? And we recall back in a uh, John chapter 3, it was Nicodem Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, who came to uh, Jesus by night. And he said, uh, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. You confess that. The religious rulers over Israel were locked into their own religious system. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Did they believe that Jesus was a miracle worker? Yes. Nobody denied that. But they did not have saving faith in Christ for 
fear of the Pharisees so that they would be put out of the synagogue. They loved the world. They loved the world. They loved the power and control that they had. They loved the glory that comes from man. And they did not have the love of God in them. Back in uh, chapter 5, Jesus confronted these same religious leaders when he said um, in John 5, verse uh, 42, But I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Nothing's changed for them. Uh, John 12 confesses the same thing that Jesus confronted them with back in John 5. They loved the system. They long for the praise and the glory of men more than the glory that comes from God. It is obvious then that, that God hasn't taken out their hearts of stone and given them a heart of flesh. They haven't become new creations in Christ. The old things have, have, have yet to pass away. The new things have not yet come. No, nothing has changed. They still live for themselves and they were unwilling to publicly declare their allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall know them by their fruits. So, as we bring this to a close, this really underscores the danger of unbelief. I think of how long the Lord was long-suffering and merciful to me, but we're never guaranteed tomorrow. James 4 says, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I'll repeat Isaiah 55, 6. For those who have ears to hear, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Has the Lord opened your heart today to the irresistible call of grace i pray that he has paul quotes isaiah in second corinthians 6 when he says behold now is the acceptable time behold now is the time of salvation if you don't know jesus as your lord today cry out to him beg for him ask him for a new heart confess him to be lord and savior over your life and that you believe in your heart and that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. Um, we'll have the leaders up front here, and at this time I want to invite the worship team back here to lead us in one more great song. What a beautiful name, the name of Jesus.